welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. This is Civity Week on News in Context. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org. In this episode, we explore how othering has led to increased marginalization and vilification of people who are unhoused, and how civity can help counter this trend by helping people who are housed see the humanity of those without housing. My guest is Eric Tars, legal director of the National Homelessness Law Center, who reminds us that housing is a human right and hopes that helping people see each other's humanity can bring this back into focus. What is the work you're doing with relation to housing? Civic dialogue around issues of housing and and homelessness and the real divides that we find in our communities around these issues, uh, because I think housing is such a fundamental issue. You know, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's one of our most fundamental. So uh, when people are threatened without having housing, either because they actually don't have it or because they have to confront the concept that others in the community don't have it and that it might in turn be them, it can reach right down into that reptilian brain and trigger some really powerful emotional responses. That's why we need civic dialogue in a respectful and understanding and empathetic tone to be able to get us out of that fear response, triggered response, and into actual dialogue where we can talk about the fact that, you know, yes, homelessness is bad, and it's bad for everybody in the community, and the solution is not a law enforcement-based one uh, that's only actually going to make things worse. It might erase the problem from your particular street corner, but it's just going to put it on somebody else's. And then, you know, that person who's had to go through that traumatic law enforcement experience is going to have an arrest record, is going to have fines and fees they can't pay as a barrier before they can actually get out of homelessness. So it's actually prolonging homelessness and making it worse in your community, even if you can't see it on your street corner anymore. And so instead, we need to be focusing on the actual systemic solutions to address the underlying causes of homelessness. But it's hard to get to that that meaningful conversation. If you can get to that conversation on the merits, the constructive solutions win every time. But if you can't get there, if you're just stuck in that fear-based response, which is where some politicians like to keep you, then you don't get to the actual evidence-based responses that are going to solve things and things that only end up getting worse. I want to ask you so many things, but I want to start with this whole reptilian brain, emotional response, fear-based response versus, I'm paraphrasing, but you said solutions that, you know, that solve the problem, win every time, right? Like solutions that actually address the issue of homelessness, win every time. And yet these trigger responses keep winning and they keep driving the issue forward. Why you think it is that that emotional fear-based trigger response wins the day here and and that and that the stuff that really solves the problem it doesn't seem to be gaining traction in a lot of cases. Unfortunately, you know, we are now kind of operating in this post-truth society where truthiness 
is more important than truth. And the Dunning-Kruger effect convinces people, you know, the, the less they know, the more they're convinced they know everything. And so you get stuck in these reactions when you hear the actual truth, if it doesn't fit into the frame that you've convinced yourself is the correct frame, then it doesn't mesh. And so it makes uh, the pre-existing narratives and prejudices and stereotypes so much more effective. So in America, you know, we have this narrative of the American work ethic. And if you work hard, then you get ahead. And the corollary is, therefore, if you haven't gotten ahead, if you're out there on the streets, then it must be because you haven't worked hard. It's not the systemic issues. Rents have gone up. Wages have remained flat for decades. But it must be something that you've done. And therefore, it's fine to blame you. And, you know, you just kind of keep on going down that road. And if you're, you know, a wealthy individual, then you might not like that reminder that poverty exists in your community. And then you have to confront, you know, is the inequality that I'm benefiting from uh, actually fair? And if you're a poor person, then you can see that person out there on the street. One, you get this triggered fear response there, but for the grace of God, go I. And rather than that creating empathy, it creates the I don't want to think about this kind of effect. There's also that why should that person get free housing if I have to work two jobs to pay the rent instead of questioning why do I have to work two jobs to pay the rent and seeing that we're all on the same side here and we're confronting the same issues of lack of affordable housing in our communities and this person is just somebody who you know wasn't able to keep working that second job or is actually working two jobs but still wasn't able to pay the rent. And so it's that combination of the fear-based response mixed with the judgment um, that fits into the narrative that kind of keeps it in that individual analysis rather than getting to uh, look at the systemic problems that are actually creating homelessness. As you know, in so many areas of policy in the U.S. or issues in the U.S., we do tend to look at each other rather than looking at the system or rather than looking at the people who sort of are the gatekeepers of the system. And that does keep us, I think, in a lot of cases from really solving the problem. So you're doing work now that you're trying to connect people on various sides of the housing issue to be in relationship with each other so that they can make these connections and work from a different frame or a different angle to try to solve this problem. Talk to me a little bit about how you got to this place where you identified the idea that building relationships across some of these housing silos was something you thought might be effective. So the underlying problem is that we don't have enough affordable housing in our community. And we need people to be engaged, to engage with their elected officials to help them make that happen. Um, but in many cases, even when you get approval for funding or a private developer applying for somewhere to put it, the community itself says, nope, not in my backyard. It's a great idea, but it should always be somewhere else. So we need to be able to, to talk to people and emphasize that we are all in this together and this housing, everybody needs it in the community. And it you don't have it, then everybody in the community suffers. One of our cases uh, in San Diego around vehicle 
residency. In many cases, disabled and elderly people who can't access regular shelters even. There's not enough shelter, but even that that exists isn't disabled accessible. And so the best place that they can actually live is in vehicle. They can't afford the rent on their social security or pension income. But you get these neighborhood groups who take pictures of trash outside of some of these motorhomes, RVs, uh, vans that people are living in, you know, pictures of poop on the sidewalk, uh, and they're sending them to their elected officials, like generating all this energy in these neighborhood uh, next door type groups. In this uh, case, we actually got the judge to agree that enforcing these laws was unconstitutional and unfair. The city repealed the ordinance, but within days, uh, the folks on those um, next door networks were sending those pictures in, saying, this is what's happening in my neighborhood. You need to do something about it. And they reinstituted. They just tweaked the wording a little, and they put that ordinance right back into effect. And all the legal work that we had done like basically went out the window. You know, I just had this vision where there's so much energy in those groups. And if it could only be turned to constructive solutions, if there was just one person in that group who said, look, I agree with you. Those people should not be, you know, living in vans on our streets. They should be in housing, making it illegal to park on the streets so that their vehicles get towed, their homes get taken away is only going to put them literally out on the streets. And you're going to like that a lot less than them living in their vehicles. And these are mostly, as I said, like elderly disabled people. Like, is that how we want to treat each other? If you just get that one voice in each one of these next door networks, then you could take all that energy that says we need a solution to this problem and really make it a solution that that works for everybody in the community rather than just the housed people. Even the elected officials, it doesn't make it easier for them to criminalize homelessness. It's just the most politically expedient thing for them to do because they know that if they don't act in response to the community, uh, if they aren't seen acting, if they try to get you know a new housing bond approved so that there's funding for affordable housing, it's going to be you know three, five years before ground is even broken. By that point, they've been voted out of office because they weren't responsive to the community telling them that homelessness was a priority. And so the easiest thing for them to do is always just criminalize it, make it disappear from the people who are complaining about its streets and say, I did something. But if you can get the people of that community saying, look, we will support you in making that long-term investment that's actually going to solve this problem for all of us, it frees them up really to do the right thing rather than just the expedient thing. I think you've identified the problem so well. And as far as what to do about it, I think that's where civity can come into play. So civity's motto is from us versus them to we all belong. And you said moving from we need to get rid of these people to we need to help our neighbors. And to me, that's exactly from us versus them to we all belong. I mean, that is civity at its core. And there's great research out there that once you begin to see someone's humanity, it's really difficult to backtrack on that. I feel like civity kind of nudges people, you know, in that direction. That's why you have folks like you know, former President Trump, who are fear-mongering 
around these issues and using that same kind of rapist and murderers language that he used about people coming over the border. He's now using about people experiencing homelessness, trying to make people afraid so that they don't make that connection. They're afraid to even go into that homeless encampment where it's just our neighbors who don't have homes who are suffering and who could use that connection. But if you're too afraid to even go there, then then you don't make that connection in the first place. That's one of the kind of really insidious things that we see happening a lot more now, this national push to criminalize and demonize this population and lock them up, move them into internment camps under the threat of arrest. It really is kind of this creeping fascism, the antithesis of democracy and and civility and civic dialogue, that others don't belong and we need to get them out of the community. You're right. It is insidious. And I wish more people would recognize it because it's very scary and it's so effective. So to me, the work you're doing and hopefully the work Civity is doing is is needed now more than ever. I think that jump to, you know, we all belong, like we saw the potential of it in the pandemic when we did realize we were all in it together, you know, that the threat of tens of millions of Americans losing their housing because they were out of work actually got the resources that we needed to keep them in their housing through emergency rental assistance. For once, we had that that bipartisan consensus that like we have to keep people in their homes or it's going to make this pandemic so much worse and have lasting impacts for so many people. And for the people on the streets, we got the CDC to come out with guidance that said, If you move people out of encampments without providing them with individual housing, if you put them into congregate shelters or into jails, even worse, like that's going to be the worst thing that we could do for the pandemic. And if you want that ICU bed available for when you need it or your grandmother needs it, then you got to make sure it's not already filled up with a medically vulnerable person who's been living on the streets, who was thrown into a homeless shelter and then suddenly all hundred people in there are sharing the same air and all getting COVID. So they said, you know, no evictions without individual housing. And then FEMA actually supported communities in getting those individual housing units, uh, providing hotel rooms for people experiencing homelessness. And we saw that a lot of this myth of service resistance, quote unquote, service resistance was just that was a myth. When you are offering somebody only a congregate shelter bed in a uh, facility that doesn't actually meet their needs, sure, they're going to refuse that. But when you offer them a dignified space, the same as you would want for yourself or anybody else uh, in your family, with its own locking door, with its own bathroom, then they took it 95% plus of the time. You know, So it's not that they're service resistant, it's that the services are people resistant. And all of that really helped to keep the pandemic from getting worse. And so we had this this moment, these models of what we can do when we realize we're all in it together. You know, even the Congress can work. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's kind of all faded and we're back to, to business as usual. It shows the potential that when we have that dialogue, when we respect each other as human beings, when we understand that we're all part of the same community, then we can actually get the solutions that everybody 
benefits from. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about housing as a human right with Eric Tars, legal director of the National Homelessness Law Center. What are some of the legal issues that you find yourself dealing with as you navigate this issue? We are working to defend the rights of people who are living on the streets. And it is not our goal in this to defend the right of somebody to sleep on the streets. That's not a win for us. It's not a win for them. It's not a win for the community. But the reason that we do this is so that we take that most politically expedient option of we'll just criminalize everybody and push them out of public sight off the table with one of our cases, uh, Martin v. Boise, in which the, the Ninth Circuit recognized that it's cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment to punish somebody for unavoidable life-sustaining conduct, like needing to sleep, needing to shelter yourself from the elements in the absence of any alternative. And so many communities uh, signed on to amicus briefs and protested and said, like, this takes away tools from law enforcement to deal with homelessness. Uh, It takes away tools from our community to deal with homelessness. No, it doesn't. Law enforcement shouldn't be dealing with homelessness. It's exactly the opposite. We are giving them tools. When those constituents come in to them and say, there's this encampment on my corner, I want it gone, they can say, well, look, the courts have told us, you know, we can't just simply push those people off that corner unless we give them some place better to go. So let's work together to find those constructive solutions. It opens up the ability for dialogue rather than getting the elected officials and the community as a whole siphoned off into this this negative spiral, which is where we always seem to end up. So that's the reason that we bring these cases. It's not the end in itself. Um, It's a a tool that we're trying to leverage uh, in order to have the broader policy dialogue that we need to have. In some places, it's worked. It's helped to generate that shift in approach in too many other places, like what happened in San Diego, they just tweak the words a little bit, pay their lawyers lots of money that could be going to homelessness, um, and instead, you know, uh, just try and find the constitutional loophole rather than like what would actually uh, help in the community. Yeah, that always fascinates me. Like so much money is spent to defend, and I'm like, but take that, that money, my God, we could just fix it here. Yeah, that, that always fascinates me. In Los Angeles, one year. They had a report that out of the $100 million spent to address homelessness, $87 million of it was for law enforcement, only $13 million was for the services. If you flip that, then you actually solve homelessness right. in, in the community. But they don't because, because you can hide the costs of homelessness in that police budget. You don't have to acknowledge it, whereas for the housing and the services, you almost always have to acknowledge it up front. We need to bring those costs out because that's what enables the true civic dialogue to take place. When you don't have that transparency, then you aren't able to have the conversation that you actually need. Your San Diego example, there's the idea of, you know, federal government or the state government will pass a law, but local agencies are responsible for implementing it. And that can be very different. Right now in California, there are two bills that have been introduced that would criminalize homelessness statewide, and they both don't have any fiscal component to them. And so often this is what we see, like they'll pass the law and 
uh, in many communities, they have these fiscal sunshine provisions that say, like, if you need to make a budget allocation for it. And they all check the box, no fiscal impact. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's going to cost two to three times more than providing housing would but you get to hide that fact. And that's why it's so easy to pass these laws. We talked about earlier the uh, the reptilian brain and the emotion and the fear. People who live in the communities where the housed people are looking at the unhoused people and that perception is real to them, right? Like they're not trying to be mean or whatever. They might be scared that something would happen no matter how um, borne out that is or un, you know, factual or not factual that may be. So when people sort of engage in what used to be called nimbyism, and now I guess it's, oh, I want to preserve the character of my community, or oh, I'm concerned about crime, or whatever it is. Um, do you have a response to them? How do you reframe that narrative to both address and acknowledge their concerns, but help bring them along? What I always lead with is we all agree that people shouldn't be living on the streets. It's not safe or healthy for anybody in the community. Again, trying to build that sense of we are all in this um, and reframe it as this is about all of us. We agree that public safety is, is suffering, but public safety is not served by criminalizing people who are just trying to survive, by compelling law enforcement officers who aren't trained for crisis intervention, like a, a social worker would be, to have to go with a sidearm on their hip to threaten to take away somebody's tent, their very shelter. Again, that base level of your Maslow's hierarchy. Of course, people are going to react to that threat to their very survival. And it's setting the police up for, you know, the next viral video incident. Um, and they don't want to be in that position. In Los Angeles, with, with some of these bills that they're suggesting, they're saying we don't want to be <laughs> in that role. Stop putting us as the frontline responders to homelessness. It should be trained outreach workers who are there, not with a sidearm, but with offers of services and housing that people actually need, building relationships with people. And that's going to get a way better response. And that's, again, evidence borne out um, in the communities that have actually ended chronic homelessness in this country. There's dozens of communities that have ended veterans homelessness in this country because they've been provided with those resources and with those outreach workers, we can do this. We know it's not the homeless services that are failing to end homelessness. They know what they're doing. It's the failure to give them the resources they need. And so if we can shift those resources and say public safety is not just served by law enforcement, public safety is served by housing people, it's actually going to cost less <laughs> Public health, if you're concerned about the feces on the sidewalk, you know, nobody likes to see that and nobody likes to have to go to the bathroom in public. It's incredibly demeaning. Like, we are the wealthiest country in the world. We should not have that problem. So if public health officials thought that criminalizing people was the answer, they would say that. But no, the American Public Health Association has said criminalization is the worst approach. The public health approach is, you know, you provide public bathrooms in place, or you get people into housing. But one other point on public safety, there are other studies that show that in communities that take this really forceful approach to enforcement of low-level crimes, the rates of 
prosecution of violent crimes actually go down. So there are fewer violent criminals being prosecuted because the courts and the police are too busy. So you're not even making the community safer. You're making it less safe by focusing on people just trying to survive outside. Like I said, if we can get to the merits-based conversation with people, then whether you look at it from a fiscal, a public health, a public safety approach, these constructive approaches win every time. But we just have to, to get to that conversation in the first place. Before you came to this work, you did a lot of international work. There's any aspect of your international experience that informs your approaches and your perspectives? I came to this work from the international human rights perspective that housing is a basic human right. have been working at the Law Center for the past uh, 15, 16 years towards that end. And for probably a decade of that, felt like I was banging my head against a brick wall, um, but doing a lot of really great base building work at the grassroots level. When I mean, if you talk to a person experiencing homelessness or somebody uh, who can't afford their rent and you tell them housing is your basic human right as part inherent in your essential human dignity, that resonates and it changes the perspective from we need to beg for charity for these basic human needs to we are demanding our rights from our government that has a duty to us and it is failing in that duty. It is violating its own obligations to provide for us its citizens. How do you see civity informing your work? I think it, it all has to start from that very neighborhood level. We need that sense that we are all in this together, that these are our unhoused neighbors. There was a camp up in Walla Walla, Washington, in the, this kind of city square. There was a lot more kind of downtown activity happening, and uh, they didn't want the people experiencing homelessness there. They assumed they were all transients, nomads, out-of-towners, um, and they just wanted them gone. But when they did a survey and found out that 90% of them had lived in Walla Walla, prior to becoming homeless, and 75% of them were actually born there, it changed the dialogue. And they said, these aren't, you know, strangers, these aren't other, these are us. These are our people who we have failed. And so let's look for alternative solutions other than just locking up our, our neighbors. That's where it all has to start. And we have to be able to have that dialogue uh, get beyond those fear-based responses. Is there anything else you want to say that I didn't ask you that you think it's important for people to know? The racially disparate impact of all these policies, whether it's the lack of affordable housing or the criminalization of homelessness, uh, we are all harmed by these things, but there are some communities that are harmed more than others. In some communities, half the people who are in jail on any given night are there because of homelessness. In San Francisco, there's a study done, African-American homeless people are 10 times more likely to be charged for these low-level quality-of-life offenses than white people. So each one of those arrests, each one of those tickets is an opportunity for police violence. And so if your issue is police brutality, if your issue is mass incarceration, your issue is homelessness and the criminalization of homelessness. 
And the solution to all of this is housing. It's true on a racial front, but also for people with disabilities, for the LGBTQ community, all these already marginalized communities, that marginalization intersects with homelessness and makes people even more vulnerable to police violence, to vigilante violence, um, which we see a lot and growing in communities. Uh, There was an article that just came out last week that showed the rate of murder of people experiencing homelessness has gone way up over the past few years. And if we are working towards a more equitable world, this has to be part of the conversation. Thank you to my guest, Eric Tars, Legal Director of the National Homelessness Law Center. For more information, go to homelesslaw.org. This is Civity Week on News in Context. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. To learn more, go to civity.org. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.